0: I have in the last um, <clears throat> six weeks become quite a traveler, and um, it, Craig, is, Craig is laughing because over the last six weeks, I have been on the road um, for over 5,000 miles um, in a car, okay, um, that or in a, in a vehicle. Most of that I've been driving. Um, a good bit of that I was riding with Craig um, on a choir tour, which was what, like 1,900 of those miles or something like that. Um, so there's other the other people in the room have been on that that portion of the, the 1900 miles, but I've also had uh, some uh, family business and different things going on, and I've been I've been in the car. Okay, so I've become uh, quite a traveler. And as I was thinking about this and um, and what God had on my heart, I started thinking about this 5,000 miles and where it might have taken me otherwise. Okay, um, because it's that's a pretty significant distance. Okay. <laughs> And so I started kind of like, you get on Google Maps and you say, start here and go where? And it turns out that that 5,000 miles would have um, taken me, if I could get in a car and drive all the way to, um, like over the Atlantic Ocean on a bridge, it would have gotten me to one of my favorite places in the world, which is Rome, Italy. in 2006, Kelly and I took a trip to, to Rome. And um, on this trip, I was finishing up in a, a school program, and I had to do 40 hours of what they call ethnographic study, which means they have to stick you in another culture and, and um, to, to kind of look at that culture and kind of compare it to yours and what you can do with it and so forth and so on. And so I took this, this survey, which I, I thought was pretty simple and easy that people would fill out for me. And I, I became that guy who stands at the top of the escalator, and says, "Do you like beans?" And um, that was, you know, this—that was me. And um, I, you know, instead, this was a this was a survey about religious attitudes inside of of the city of Rome. And so, I um, we went and did this, and I, I realized very quickly that my translation that I had done to Italian, or that Google had done for me, was not very good, um, and that. Uh, that people in Rome were not interested in talking to me, okay? And so part, part of this, though, too, is my, my wife had, had gone um, away from home and away from family, and, I, you know, when we got ready to go on this trip, I said, you know, all right, you, you've sacrificed a lot to be here with me and, and to go on this journey. Where do you want to go to do this study? And that was where she picked to go, and so that's where we went. But there's lots of things in, um, in Rome that are absolutely amazing to see, and it was a fantastic trip. Um, we were lost at least 80% of the time that we were there, and um, we, we had some really crazy experiences, but we also had some pretty uh, amazing experiences, and, and I want to share two of them with you this morning, and, and then expound a little bit about what God might do with those things for us. But one of them is, I knew a missionary that worked in the city of Rome, and He pastored an international church near all the embassies. And so we went to church on Sunday morning there, actually Sunday evening there, because in the morning it was an Anglican church. Um, In the evening it was this uh, independent church. It's called International Christian Fellowship. It's uh, ICF. Um, Over 41 nations represented in this one worship service. Um, It was fantastic. But then um, what was even better is that my my church that I had grown up with had, had worked with this church in Rome, and we had helped to pay for a prayer center for them. Um, And we weren't the only ones, but we we gave a significant amount of money from our church to develop this prayer center. Um, And on Tuesday night, we got to go and sit in a prayer meeting like I've never experienced before Um, because there were people from all nationalities there. um, And the the about 20 of us in the room, there were probably close to 20 languages represented in the room. And everybody prayed and everybody prayed in their own language. And we all sat there. And I, I don't know that I've ever experienced God in in that type of way, where we were together as one, even though we were so different. Um, even to the point where we didn't even understand what we were saying to each other, but God's presence was so real that you understood. But the, the most important experience I might have had in that place, and the most... Um, most memorable for me personally was a walk that Kelly and I took one day and um, we looked at a map and Kel said I think we can walk here and um, and I went back and looked at Google Maps and it says it only takes an hour to walk there which is and she's going like this because Google Map is wrong okay (laughs) it is it is wrong very very wrong okay it we left Teatro Macello at like Nine o'clock in the morning, we stopped for one cappuccino and we walked to the catacombs of St. Callistus. And the catacombs of St. Callistus are three miles from there. You should be able to do that in, a, in an hour. But we spent um, our way weaving through all kinds of things. Ended up on a road with walls on either side of it and buses going up and down a two lane road where we stood against the wall like this because there wasn't a sidewalk in these buses you know, scared to death, you know, but we were, we're going. And, um, and so we, we walked all the way there and we get there at 12.05. So it took us three hours and five minutes to get there, but at noon they closed for lunch. And so (laughs) (laughs) we walked all the way there and then sat down for 55 minutes and, and waited and relaxed, But then in that that very moment that they open the gates and this little Irish priest comes out and he starts talking to us about the history of these catacombs. He starts talking to us about what we're going to see and how it's going to to look. And and he says, okay, you ready? And we all go and we walk down these little stairs that are probably as wide as these stairs here, maybe two feet wide, and we weave our way down um, about ten meters underground into a graveyard that held, um, most of the Christians that died in Rome between 200 and 300 AD during a great persecution where they weren't allowed to be buried in their family plots inside the city. They weren't allowed to be buried, um, anywhere near, um, the center of Rome, and during the great persecutions, when they wouldn't allow them to worship in the city, this is where the Christians would come out of the city, walking down the same road that we did, and they would walk into these staircase that we had walked down, and they would worship underground so that people couldn't find them. There were 16 popes buried there. There were martyrs that had been killed in the city, buried there. Um, along with thousands of other Christians who just weren't allowed to be buried in their home plots. And then there's this stairway that goes up at one point when you're walking through, and you're not allowed to go up the stairs, but you can look up them. And the priest told us the story of these two young boys who were trying to sneak the communion elements into into the worship service. And the Roman soldiers had followed them and they had found them and they murdered them on those stairs. And they're still known as the Bloody Stairs because these two 12-year-old boys gave their lives so that others could experience communion. And I'm getting emotional because for me, it was a very emotional experience to realize what the forefathers of my faith had gone through and the forefathers being those two 12 year old boys you don't think of those as forefathers but they're forefathers and the trip to Italy that we had decided to take became a, a, something different it became a journey that would begin to change who I was and change how I thought about things and um, I don't tell you this story to... I mean, I'm I'm obviously emotional about it because it's real. And I've told my wife, I was like, you know, do not spend money on a funeral. Y'all go find a field, play some music, hang out, cremate me and take me to St. Callistus and dump me somewhere out there because I think that's where I learned what it was to be a believer in Christ. Guys, trips... We take trips all the time, and that's what most of my my time traveling those 5,000 miles the last month and a half has been. I've been taking trips, okay? Trips go to known destinations. Trips go for known outcomes, mostly known. We have general expectations of what these trips may be. Like a trip to Myrtle Beach. You're going to get sand between your toes. You're going to... Sit on the beach at sunrise because you're on the East Coast. If you're the West Coast, it's sunset. No fun to watch the sunrise on the West Coast. You know, these are trips, these are things that you expect. But a journey is a little bit different. A journey becomes about the revelation of things that are unknown in your life, and those things becoming known, revealed to you. It's about exploration, and it's about the growing or developing sense of experience and who you are. My trip to Italy became a journey that began to change who I was. I began to recognize the shallowness of my own faith. And this was a trip that was at the end of my studies to be a leader in the faith, to be a pastor. And in those moments when I'm supposed to lead people, I realize how shallow my heart really is. because I don't know if I would die on those stairs. It was an experience that would shape who I was. It was an experience that would launch me into a new frontier of my life. And as we look at what the difference would be between a trip or a journey, I want us to take a look today at a journey in Scripture. And hopefully as we hear what God's word says to us, that we can journey into something new in who we are. And something new into who God is. One of the things that I love about scripture, and I always try to talk about scripture when I'm going to use scripture, is that the the Bible is a collection of stories, accounts, parables, all these types of things. And they all individually exist But they all connect together to create one story, or one story, sorry, holding up two fingers is two stories. They connect together to make one story. And in that one story, we see um, the progression of a people. It's the same God. He's the same all the way through, even though he may even seem different, but he's, he is the same working on a group of people who is changing as he redeems and as he builds his character and as he grows them as a people. And then when Christ comes, we see him grow us all as individuals as well. But this journey, this experience that we have in Scripture is real. And so today I want to start back towards the beginning, not all the way in the beginning, but we're going to look at four different pieces of Scripture today. And the first one, it comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the account of the burning bush with Moses. So let's just read. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he fled the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought... I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And I always just think that's funny. You know, you see a bush that's burning but not burning. And he goes, I'll go look at this. Anyway, so, so when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And this is kind of the first stop on our journey today, at least. God's spirit, in the beginning, it hovered over the waters of the earth. And it's, it's been in work. It's It's been speaking to people individually, and it's been dropping thoughts in the, in the hearts of people. And they've heard God speak. And and it's been happening all about it. But in this moment, there's a manifestation of God's presence. And it's in this bush that's burning. And it attracts Moses to him, to this, this place. And, but there's something different about what happens here. And, and the bush is burned and it's not consumed. And this miraculous thing happens. And then God tells Moses to not come any closer. Which, if we start thinking about what we hear in church and what we hear in scripture in and, and, and Christianity today, it's always "draw close to me, come close to me, come into my presence, come into this." But at this point, God is looking at Moses and says, "Do not come any closer." This is an introduction. This is God looking at him and saying, "I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac." You do not understand who I am because your people have been in exile and your people have been separated from me. And at this moment, you do not need to come any closer. I need to introduce myself to you. You need to understand and know that I'm holy and that this place is holy. And even you are wearing sandals at the moment is too much separation. But you need to hold on and realize who I am. And this introduction is is real, and God is engaging there. But there is still this separation between God and Moses. There's a formality that's taking place, and in that formality, there's actually comfort if you think about it a little bit, because here's Moses who realizes who he's talking to, and he hides his face. If he had to engage so directly, I don't, I don't know how Moses would hang on to that situation. So that's our first stop. And I just want you to, we're going to kind of walk through these scriptures. And I just want you to hold these things in your mind that in the burning bush, there's this separation. There's an introduction. And then just a little bit later, actually 37 chapters later, same book, book of Exodus, um, same people, Moses and God once again. God has instructed Moses how to build this tent. And it's um, it's huge. It's not a small thing. It's not a small task. If you go back and read maybe 37, 38, 39 chapters of, of Exodus, you will find not, not only um, instructions, but very detailed instructions. You should build it this wide, this long, this tall. Use this type of wood, this type of fabric. Put it, put it here, put it there. Use this rope. Do this. I mean, there is like... It's like blueprints to the point where people today have gone and they've built this tent again from the blueprints found in scripture, okay? It's, it's specific. Um, but he, he instructs Moses how to build this tent, and then something happens. And that's what we read here in Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, 34 through 38. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, which is what they called this tent. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from, the, from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels." And so we go from a burning bush with a single person who becomes the mouthpiece of God. We go to a tent built very specifically with very specific instructions, not only for Moses now to meet with God, but we go to a tent where God becomes accessible to everyone. In all the sight of the Israelites, God is accessible and there's this tent and His glory. Um, some people would call it the the Shekinah, which is more most time referencing Moses' face, but this, this glory, this thickness, this weight of God would settle on the tent. And when it lifted and it moved, then the people would lift and they would move. They would take the tent down and they would remove the tent and put it back up where he, where he stopped. And so we go from a separated God. Don't, don't, don't come near To a God who has settled in a tent and has marked a place, at least, when he's there, that the people can recognize and be accessible to him. And it's not just for Moses anymore. It's for everyone. And they can see and they can experience his power. But when it's time for him to move, he moves. And then they pick up and they move. That's our second stop on our journey today. Just hang with me. In 1 Kings, we uh, we hear the story, or we read the account, rather, of this tabernacle becoming a temple. And King Solomon, who's the second, or excuse me, the third king of, of Israel, he's David's son, he is, um, he is given the charge by God to build this temple, which is much like the tabernacle, but instead of being something that moves, instead of being something that gets taken down and put up, and follows God, this temple is permanent. This temple is solid. This temple has got a foundation. It's got roots. It's got establishment. And in these moments, Solomon builds this temple, again, very much by a very specific design with very specific materials and very specific order. They build this temple... And God's presence comes and rests in that place. And this is where all the people come to. This is what it reads in, in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites And I will not abandon my people Israel. So no longer would the presence of God pick up and move. No longer would it, the people have to travel to find him. The presence of God would live with the people of Israel. And he wouldn't abandon them. This temple, parts of it, still exist today. I would love to see it. That's a trip I want to take. But this place is a holy ground once again, but not just a bush or a tent that's moving, but now an established place of God. Finally, in Ephesians chapter 3, we find our final stop on this journey. It says this... For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In this final stop, we see through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that God makes his dwelling place not in a bush or in a tent or in a temple, but he makes his dwelling places in the hearts of his people. And we go from separation and accessibility and establishment to the indwelling presence of God who lives not with us, but in us. The results of this is strength. As the scripture says, Straight through the power of God's presence in our inner being. This is the fortitude to stand in the face of trials, to experience his grace, his forgiveness, his redemption. This puts real roots in establishment into our hearts. It's not an established building that you go to, but instead that stability comes with the realization of God's true love for us and communicating internally in our hearts through his great love. Something that surpasses our knowledge, everything we've known, anything we could put our hands on or see, we become immersed in his presence, this baptism that happens. And in Acts chapter 2, we see this, this baptism that, that happens of, of the disciples and everybody who's gathered there in the upper room where God immerses them in his presence. And it's something that John the Baptist had told us about it's Matthew 3. It says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than me. whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So these four stops that we've taken are a journey that God takes with his people throughout all history from a bush to a tent to a temple to our hearts. And we're all on this journey ourselves. Some of you guys in the, in this path might be on a in a burning bush place where maybe you don't you don't really have a realization of the accessibility to God, or you don't have an established faith, or you don't have the I- the idea of God living in you. It just sounds crazy. You don't know what you're doing, but you you're in an introduction place where you've come into an introduction with God, and you said, "I recognize there's something real here, and I have to interact with it." But there's there's still a separation in your life, and that might be coming from circumstances that you 're dealing with it might be coming from pain it might be coming with from past experiences, but God has got you on a journey maybe you 've been introduced to God, but he 's still a moving target in your life you 're in that tabernacle place he 's moving you follow he moves you follow you 're amazed by his power, but there 's still there 's still this This idea that God can't put your hands on Him quite yet. Maybe a little bit frustrating sometimes. But you're, you're not separated. You're accessible. You're a part of this. But there's a dissatisfaction in your heart. A lot of us are in a temple stage where God is is established in our lives. We have a pattern. We have a focus. We have things that we come to every week. We have a, a routine with God. The walls are solid. We show up on a Sunday morning. We, we go to Sunday school. We do those types of things. We, we read our Bibles. We pray. And there's this establishment there. But we still long for something More. Folks, the, the destination that God has in mind for each and every one of us and for all of us is for this heart-dwelling, indwelling, immersive presence of God to be part of who we are and how we live, for his, his spirit to grab a hold of our hearts, to have purpose, to have passion that you haven't experienced before, to be empowered in those moments to see it and feel it expand inside of you rather than outside of you. Knowing that you're being filled, knowing that this establishment in your heart is rooted. It's personal, it's relationship. I can't have a relationship with a building or a place but I can have a relationship with the person of God. Even though the tabernacle hadn't been built and the temple hadn't been built, Moses had this type of relationship with God. In Exodus 34, he walks up on the mountain and he's talking with God, and when he comes back down, that Shekinah glory, that, that light... On his face, that traditionally, I mean, it said it was brighter than the sun. Like he came down and he was glowing because of he had been in the presence of God. To the point where he would speak what God had him to speak and then he would veil his face so that people could still look at him. Okay? There's this presence that he had experienced in that. He's so filled with power, so filled with light. And A.W. Tozer makes reference to that in his book, The Pursuit of God. He says this, God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. And on our part, there must be surrender to the Spirit of God, for his work is to show us the Father and the Son. Listen closely, if we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us and that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. The people who worshipped in the catacombs They had come to a place where the nominal Christian life wasn't enough. In that day and age, if you were going to be a nominal Christian, you're just going to give up. You might believe. You might talk to your family about it. But to experience the radiance of God's light in your life Took risk. The radiance of God in that moment wasn't found in the light of day. It was found underground, fighting to survive and to keep a faith alive that truly had the hope for the world. Rome thought it was the answer. These people knew that Christ was the answer. So the question for us is where our journey is headed. Remember, a trip is just a place where you know the outcome, you know the expectations, you know what you're going to get into, and you know that you're going to come home from it, and you're just going to have gone and and had some fun and come back. But a journey is different. A journey starts in one place, and you come back different come back exploring, come back having experienced something. You come back changed. There's all kinds of things I have written here. But the fact of the matter is when we stand at the bottom of the stairs in our lives and look up and see the truth of who we are. In those moments that I stood in the catacombs, I realized that I had a very temple like faith. I'd made a lot of decisions, I'd put up a lot of hard walls, but that hadn't gotten to my heart yet. Even though I had left everything I'd loved to follow it, it hadn't gotten there yet. will you guys will we may we go on a journey that leads us from the introduction the separation that we see with god to the accessibility that we understand and and the establishment but eventually takes us to a place where our hearts are alive maybe for the first time where our hearts are alive to the point that we can share that same love with other people where our hearts are alive because the Spirit of God, the presence of God has made his dwelling place in us. And that we may know the depth and the height and the width and the expanse of God's love. And that we may let other people know the height and the depth and the width and the expanse of God's love. We're in a process. I pray that God would would help us all to engage that process and to know his love for us. And to know the journey to his heart through ours. Let's pray. Father, this morning I know that um, sometimes it's difficult to look at ourselves and to really look in the mirror and say... This is who I am. It's not who I thought I was. It's not who I expected. Sometimes we look in the mirror and our reflection is not who we want it to be. And God, we realize that we're on a journey. So many times in our world, Lord, we, we get distracted in the thoughts of thinking that you want us to be living in perfection that you don't understand or that, that people don't understand, that we, we don't have it together and we can't get it together and, and all these different things that, that just drive us nuts, God. And then we can look at the beauty of your word and see that for thousands of years you took your people on a journey, ever growing closer to who they are ever growing closer to your presence to the point where your son made it possible for each and every one of us to not only to see your power, but to have that power in your life, and your love live in us. And in those moments, the walls of this building and every other church in this place became tools and not places of where you were. The temple disappeared. The temple became your people. God, help us to not be afraid of the journey. Help us to, to step out and to risk and to know that you love us enough to draw us to that place. Today, I know that people came into this room with baggage. They came into this room with all kinds of things and weight and, and, and things that they may not even realize that they're carrying, but they're loaded and breaking God, I pray that your life and your light would fill them. Help us to be humble before you, to not lie to ourselves about where we stand with you. Help us to be real. Help us to walk on your journey. Lord, we love you.